We are Gateway Chapel, where we build your world by His Word. We stand for fun, friendship, fellowship, and family. You are listening to a Gateway Chapel message. Thank you very much. It's so great to be with you. Um, I watched a service last week to know what I should wear. It's always hard to know what to wear, um, so I dressed as Pastor Eddie this morning. Um, But the problem is, he's dressed like me. So... um, It's not worked out quite right. Anyway, it's so good to be with you. I'm Gavin. I lead the Evangelical Alliance, which is a real privilege. I live in northwest London, but I'm a southeast London boy, so my grandma used to live in Bexley. Um, But I lived in Peckham, which is in a bit. But um, it's great to be amongst you. It really, really is. And I don't know about you, but I find it really irritating, annoying, and crass when people use sermons to advertise their ministry. It's irritating, isn't it? But I'm just feeling off the back of that video, you want to hear a bit about the Evangelical Alliance. So, if it's okay with you, we'll do two minutes on EA, then we'll move on. I'm always asked, what's an evangelical? That's easy. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Stop changing the Bible to fit your culture and start changing your culture with the truth on the pages of the word of God. (laughs) Secondly, we believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important thing in human history. Thirdly, we believe in the need for conversion. You don't come to faith by osmosis. You get on your knees and you meet your saviour. And fourthly, we believe in being active in the world, making the world more like the kingdom. That's why it was evangelicals that led the abolition of the slave trade in the UK. It was evangelicals who provided education before anyone else. In the last 30 years, it's been evangelicals who've, who've done street pastors, food banks, Christians against poverty. And the Evangelical Alliance is the oldest and largest organisation seeking to represent and speak up for the two million evangelicals in this country. We're 175 years old and we have the same two level one goals that we had 175 years ago. Unite the church in its mission to the lost and give the church a clear and effective voice into every layer of society. We're made up of 3,000 church members like this, 500 organisations and about 18,000 individuals who say we will come together to make Jesus known. And in the corridors of power, there's a growing scepticism towards institutions. So the individual memberships become even more important. People say, but what what, what difference does it make? Well, I'll tell you something. We're in the room. I can't promise you that Boris will listen to us every time, but we're in the room. And when you're in the room, you can take the church into the room. And the more people that join, the more people we take into the room. And then outside of that room, the more important bit, the more people that join, the more people unite in the gospel, which is our unifying factor. But to give you an example, because we're fighting all kinds of things at the moment, from conversion therapy through to certain abortion laws and other stuff. But something we did, because once it's done, I can talk about it. When we're in the middle of it, I don't want to jeopardise what we're doing right now with the government. But about three years ago, the government said they wanted to offstead youth work and Sunday schools. Do you remember that? Public regulation for private religion. I was unaware I'd moved to North Korea. And so we just said, you can't do that. You just can't do it. It's not okay. And at least for now, it's kicked into the long grass. Why? Because it wasn't one church coming along and saying we could do it. It's a bunch of us saying, let's do this together. So friends, I unashamedly ask you this morning, and if you're online, go to www.eauk.org forward slash join us. But if you're in the room, I unashamedly ask you to consider joining as a personal member. Why? Because your voice can then be used to influence, but also you stand with so many others. It costs a cup of coffee a month. It costs £3 a month to be a personal member. And you can join as an individual or as a couple. It's the same price either way. Join as a couple if you're married. Don't even check with your spouse. It counts as two. But would you consider doing that today so we can stand with so many others? And if you do, before I move on to my sermon, I'll give you three presents. Why? I like you. 
Why else? Frankly, I'm giving the next best decade or so of my life to trying to unite the church to make Jesus known. I'll give you anything if you join. I'll give you a kidney if you need one. Anyway, so I've got a table out there. First thing, unleash the Acts Church today. My wife Anne and I wrote this. How do we work like the early church today in words, works and wonders? I'll give you one of those. Secondly, unity for a purpose. Seven sessions for individual or group study. How can we be united? The world might know hope. Hope is a name. His name is Jesus. And finally, if this doesn't swing the deal, I'm stuffed. It's an EA key ring. Bear with me. This on the end is a fake detachable quid with our logo on. Right, when you need a trolley at the supermarket, you'll be so grateful you joined the EA. When you need a locker at the gym. But all I ask is, would you pray three things with me each time you use it? Would you pray the church would be united? Would you pray that our voice would be heard? And would you pray that together we might make Jesus known? Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I pray you would forgive me for overselling in your house. But you know that the motive is so pure, even if the method is a tad del boy. But Lord, as we turn to your word now, we invite you just to speak to us. Lord, whether it's through me or in spite of me, would you speak to your people today, we pray. And Lord, I also pray with their fun. As I share with my friends over the next 16 or 17 hours or so, <laughs> we pray that you would speak. Amen. Amen. So, <laughs> so the highlight of being invited here was when Pastor Eddie told me what the subject was. You see, it's Christmas time. It's the time to tell all the nice stories and have lots of fun. He said, would you come and speak, please, on how to be thankful in bad times? Brilliant. Thank you, my friend. Um, but yes, this is so important. And if my first slide can just come up, because um, there's an important picture on there. You see, I don't know, how many of you are aware of Veggie Tales? Yeah, right? Okay, I want to tell you about a moment in my life when God absolutely destroyed me while my children were watching Veggie Tales a good 10 years ago. They're watching this episode, and there's this singing cucumber called Barry or something, and he's singing about happiness. And it's this episode how about if the more stuff you buy, the happier you'll be. And yet there's this little kid who's got nothing and is given a slice of cake. And they sing a little song about a thankful heart is a happy heart. And that's why I give thanks every day. And I found myself on the floor of my lounge with my sort of four and one-year-old watching this. <coughs> and I'm just there weeping before God. Realising that I'm constantly asking for more stuff instead of being thankful. Realising that my attitude of gratitude's been dropped. Realising I've fooled for the lies of the world around me. That if you get the latest iPhone, you'll be the happiest person around. The problem is the next one comes out the next year. Then you have to be unhappy again, otherwise it doesn't work. And so I'm realising in this moment as I'm weeping on the, on the floor that actually I need to start a new discipline and I've done it every day since. And you know what? At times in the last year or so, it's been harder. This is the discipline. Wake up every morning, thank God for three things before you do anything else. Because the only way to work against a culture that teaches you to be unhappy is to be grateful. And when you're grateful, you don't ask for more stuff straight away. So I wonder how many of us, even if that's it, from now on, the rest of your life, every day, wake up. First three things you do, thank God for three things. Even if it is, I'm awake, the sun's up, and the world's not ended. You know, there's your, there's your starting position. If you really can't think of anything else, there's enough to be grateful for. But gratitude is the antidote to consumerism. I wonder if you'd turn with me to James chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, would you turn it on? <coughs> and we're going to read James 1, from verse 2 to 12. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James is a realist. That's what I like about James. He's just a realist. Straight away, makes it clear, even the Christian life is not always enjoyable. You know, one of the things that's frustrated me with so many of my friends in the last two years who are Christians is how much they've moaned about what they can't do. It's how much it's hit them that Christian industries and events and various things haven't taken place. So suddenly it's all awful. You know, in fact, let me be honest. COVID has sent most of my Christian friends to sleep spiritually and has been the start of a great awakening amongst my non-Christian friends. So my non-Christian friends are all saying, well, what's going on? There must be something more than this. I'm scared of dying. I used to think if I got older, I just got a new moisturizer. I now think I might die. And my Christian friends are like, not allowed to sing. Can't go to events. How can God have let this happen? And you're like, friends, we've got to have a sense of perspective. Christian life is sometimes hard. Jesus spent most of his ministry under pressure. We say we want to be like Jesus. Do we mean it? He wept by a friend's grave. He sweated mental agony in the garden. He sweated blood in Gethsemane. And he died in torment on a cross. At the start of the Sermon of the Mount, he makes it clear what it means to be blessed. The poor, those who mourn, the meek, the persecuted. The secret lies in what God is doing for us in testing times, not whether or not they'll come. And I think we live in an unfaithful culture. And we're being called to be faithful to Jesus in a countercultural way. You know, our culture, you don't stick at anything for your whole life unless it's your football team. And unless you picked AFC Wimbledon, you got it wrong. Because Jesus supports Wimbledon. People say, why? Well, he cares about the marginalised, those mistreated and those who've been forced to live in exile. Anyway, have you noticed how unfaithful our culture is? When I was a boy, the most successful shop at the end of the road was the TV repair shop. Now, even if your TV is 4K HD, whatever, if it breaks, you throw it in a bin. My mum used to have a hanger with zips on. So if your zip broke on your trousers, she'd sew a new zip in. Who does that anymore? And also, who buys trousers well made enough that the zip breaks before everything else has fallen apart? <laughs> or even Christian marriages, dare I say. The amount of my friends, it's not, you know, yes, there are reasons why marriages end, but the amount of my friends whose marriages are ending because they just don't think they love them anymore. You're like, love's not a feeling, friend, it's a choice. Everything's gone instant. Everything's gone instant. We've got this love of self. You know, the latest Adele album, which she's written to tell the story of her divorce so she can explain to her son 
that her happiness is the most important thing in her life. What's happened? Where's all this nonsense come from? It's not about self and what I get. It's about Jesus and how great he is. And we have got to move away from prosperity nonsense that says that, you know, if you love Jesus, everything will be perfect. Nothing will go wrong. You'll be healthy and wealthy. How does that work? Jesus died at 33. It's not very healthy. He never owned anything. It's not very wealthy. We need to get back to the fact bad stuff happens. God is good. We must focus on Jesus as our priority. You know, we get so distracted by the bad stuff. Distractions are so easy to find and so hard to lose. And we mustn't get distracted by them and keep our focus on Jesus. Here's the victory, because let me encourage you with something. We have got to start living more in the light of eternity. Because however many bad things happen between now and the end of time, however many wars, rumours of wars, however many coronavirus pandemics, however much persecution happens, however many good things happen, however many revivals there are, however many renewals in the church there are, however many World Cups England win, and not rugby nonsense, football. (laughs) However much good or bad happens between now and the end of time, the end of the story is the same. Jesus wins. So why as the church do we not behave like that? We have a hope so sure, a promise so secure. We must hold to that in the midst of the difficulty. Which is why I just think there's three things from this little passage that are important. The first is this, we need to persevere. We need to persevere. Verses two to four, really. Now, to lean into Christmas, because I can't miss Christmas altogether. Persevering in Christmas, Joseph. Joseph is amazing, isn't he? The way that Joseph sticks by Mary. Now, forgive me, you might say, of course he does. No, no, no. I did 14 years in youth work before I joined the EA. I've met many people who've claimed to have a virgin birth. (laughs) Imagine being Joseph. You've been a good boy. And you are betrothed to marry the woman you love. And she comes up to you and says, by the way, fella, it's happening. There's a baby coming. But it's not yours, it's God's. (laughs) I'm not being funny. That's quite out there, isn't it? He could have stoned her. Deuteronomy makes it clear, you know, the the sort of sentence for an adulteress is stoning. But he doesn't, he perseveres, he goes. Joseph is the unsung hero of Christmas, you know. You'll even notice how many Christmas cards don't even have him on. Poor fella. But I'll tell you what, he persevered. And persevering is refusing to find the easy way out when the pressures of life weigh too heavy. Staying put when life's at its hardest. That's persevering. Refusing to give up and keeping going. It's about 16 years ago now, my wife Anne decided she wanted to have babies. We've been married over 20 years um, I know I don't look old enough, but that's moisturiser for you. But um, she decided she wanted to have babies, and I thought, it sounds like a good idea. And so we tried for quite a while, and after a couple of years, nothing had happened. And I genuinely remember feeling sorry for Anne, because she clearly had a fertility issue. And so we went, through, we went through the tests, and she was fine. Um, and I remember sitting in a doctor's surgery, as they looked at me and said, I'm really sorry, but you almost certainly can't have children. And uh, keep trying, but you almost certainly can't. And you're like, that's quite a shock, isn't it? Especially when you work in youth ministry. The day after I was told that, a 14-year-old in my youth group told me they were pregnant. It's quite a hard time. The funny thing is, though, the, the month after that, my wife got pregnant. Saviour, he can move the mountains. If he wants to, he can also impregnate women from sterile men. And nine months later, our daughter, Amelie, came into the world. It was amazing. 
Then about 18 months after that, my dad was over. My mum and dad are British, but they live in America. So my dad was over, and um, in order to make him feel at home, I went out to get the national dish of Great Britain. I went out to pick up a curry. And uh, I came back with a curry. And I come back with a curry. My dad looks like he's seen a ghost. Anne's crying. Anne takes me in the side room. She says, I'm pregnant again. I said, the first thing that came into my head, I shouldn't have said it. I said, who's the dad? <laughs> now, obviously, it's me. It's another miracle. It's all amazing. We went for the scan. Now, I'm going to help you fellas that haven't had kids yet. When you go for the scan, right, even though you can't really see it, and it looks like a cross between a sultana and a mushroom, <laughs> just pretend that it's cute. Right? So I'm there, and I'm just sort of pretending it's cute. But then you just can tell there's some drama in the room because it's an ultrasound scan and tragically there's no sound. And the midwife turns to us and says, Reverend and Mrs. Calver, I'm so sorry. Your baby's died in the womb. It's not got a heartbeat. Now, in that moment, I've got a problem. You see, I can deal with miracle babies and I can deal with no babies. But I'm struggling with this. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. Oh, Lord, what's happening? What's going on? And they're explaining how Anne's got to have an operation to clear the baby. It's, just, it's all so traumatic. My daughter, Emily, who's 18 months, hugs me on the leg. It's the, it's the clearest I've heard God speak to me in my whole life. I felt the Lord say to me, do not be ungrateful to me for that which I've given you, but I haven't given you, but be grateful to me for that which I have. And be faithful to me as I've been faithful to you. So we left that room. It doesn't mean there's not pain, but we're like, all right, we crack on. Two years later, Anne gets pregnant again. Right? By this point, I've accepted I'm healed. You know, and without being too crass, it's the kind of thing you get prayed for a lot, but there's only really one way to test it. And so in the end, she's pregnant. And we've got an 18-week scan. Baby's about that big. And we'd been told the condition I had, that it was absolutely impossible to have a boy, tiny chance of having a girl. And at this 18-week scan, we realised there's a boy in Anne's womb. But also, we know we've got a problem when you start with two medics and you end with 24. They're all coming in to have a look. And it turns out that our son's got, there's these antibodies my wife and I have got that are really rare. You can't just give the injection. There's no cure for them, just intervention. And my son's heavily anemic. There's fluid around all his organs and stuff. And in the end, we're told there's a 5% chance of your son making it into the world. And we're going to have to tomorrow do a blood transfusion in the womb. Now, here we are with an 18-week-old baby, as they call it there, three corridors away. It's not even called a life, but that's a different issue. It's two donors on the blood list in the UK with the bright, right blood. We're signing off all these disclaimers. We're agreeing that Cambridge University can study us because this stuff doesn't happen. And at 18 weeks in the womb, they, they're explaining to us the real risk is heart attack. So they put a, a needle into Anne's tummy, into her womb, into the baby's tummy. They can't get a vein. The baby's too small. And they take out half the baby's blood and put the other half in. Then they explain to us, Anne's got to sleep for four hours. If the baby's moving at a scan four hours later, we fight another day. If not, we're really sorry, it's over. But prepare yourself for it being over. And I sit by Anne's bed. I've never been so alone. You know, non-Christians say, why does God allow suffering? Christians say, where is God when I'm suffering? I'll tell you where he is. He's holding your hand. And I felt compelled to pray a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, if this baby lives, you're good. And if this baby dies, you're still good. Either way, I'm going to say tomorrow that you are good. We scanned, the baby was moving. Then Anne was in hospital every other day for a blood test and a scan. Every 10 days, she had a blood transfusion. We had 10 of them in the end. At each one, I prayed that same prayer. And at each one, the Lord was good. But if the Lord hadn't have led that baby into the world, he's still good. Then at 30 weeks, which anyone who's had a baby knows that's early. In our world, they were like, better out than in. We're going to take him out. 
And so they're going to deliver him, and they say that we can't touch him, but we can see him, and he'll get rushed off to an incubator. They deliver this little baby, <coughs> and as he delivers him, holds the baby up, and the baby wheezes in this professor's face. Anne's embarrassed. I'm like, clearly he's my son. <laughs> they took him off. He was in an incubator for a few months and stuff, but absolutely now he's absolutely fine. Plays for an under-12 semi-professional football team in goal. He's doing really well. But God is good either way. And so we have got to learn to persevere in the dark and in the light. Hebrews 12 verse 1, let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Verse 4 of James 1, the outcome is a mature, complete Christian lacking nothing. I'll tell you something, that whole process with babies, my biggest weakness before that was an unawareness of any weaknesses. My biggest strength now is the fact I realise how broken I am and therefore I need a saviour. And the outcome of these sort of journeys is a mature Christian. And I look out on our landscape and I just think we have to persevere. We're living in the face of a secular tsunami. But secularism has offered nothing in this pandemic. I went on national radio against two secular academics. And they both said lots of words I didn't understand. And then I was asked, what do I think? I said, I just think it's so sad that my two friends have offered no hope at all in this moment of national crisis. Let me tell you about hope. Hope is a name. His name is Jesus. And he has changed the world. Friends, we have to speak up, speak out into our situation. You know, we're coming up, it's Christmas time. Do you know what annoys me about Christians this time of year? When I say this, oh, the world's taking Christ out of Christmas. I just find it really annoying because until we stop taking Christ out of Christianity, let's not have a go at the world for taking Christ out of Christmas. We do twice as much youth work as the state. 60% of mums and toddler groups, parent and toddler groups, happen in churches. If you ask those kind of places, why don't you talk about Jesus more? They say, we don't offend people. I'm like, I don't understand. If I go to Sports Direct and they talk to me about trainers, it's not offensive. If you come to church, you can talk about Jesus. It's okay. And I think we need to learn to persevere, to stand up, speak up and act up, to operate in words, works and wonders in our day and crack on. Over the summer, I was feeling sorry for myself because my job is hard. It is hard. And I was on a walk on the beach with the Lord. And I just felt the Lord say to me, if you need to be Stephen in your generation, you need to be Stephen. Your only choice is to step in or not. Now, I don't think I'll be Stephen. I don't think the world's going to throw rocks at me while the Lord's standing at the right hand of the Father. But I'll tell you something, we all want to be loved by everyone, but I want to be loved and, re- and honoured and, and make the Lord proud more than anything else. So I will persevere for him. When I took over leading the EA, I felt the Lord say we need to be two things. Church needs to be braver than it's ever been. We need to be brave. But we also need to be kinder than we've ever been. Those two things are not exclusive. They can work together. But we persevere. Secondly, we trust. This is verses 5 to 8. We trust. We need to trust the Lord enough that his way is better than our way. That he sees here, not here. You know, it's like when, when Philip is sent to minister to the eunuch. You know that story? It's bonkers, really, because he's ministering in Samaria. Samaria is the greatest Christian event you've ever been to on acid. There are people being exercised, healed, coming to faith. It's the greatest human moment. But God calls Philip from that to the desert to meet a eunuch on his own. See, God sees here, we see here. That eunuch becomes the first person to take the gospel to Africa, the most on fire place for Jesus today. God sees here, we see here. Do we trust him enough to go his way, not our way? Coming back to Christmas, what about Zachariah and Elizabeth when it comes to naming the baby? They go God's way and call him John. John. 
even though the world thinks it should be a different name. You know, you can only shout out to God for wisdom with confidence if you trust his power and willingness to help you. Are we going to develop enough trust that in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the hard times, we look upwards, not sideways? Because you know what? Everything in this world will fail you other than Jesus. Everything will. You can try whatever you like, but it will fail you. Jesus is the only constant. I do not know how anyone got through this pandemic without Jesus. And Christians are sometimes obsessed with life after death. I don't know how I get through tomorrow without Jesus. You know, what about now? Everything else will let you down. You know, my grandma had Alzheimer's disease. When you lose your mind. She had it as bad as you can have it. For the last eight years of her life, she sat in the corner of a nursing home dribbling on a teddy bear. She couldn't talk. She had one child, my dad, four grandchildren. She didn't recognise any of us. But she'd been a Christian for over 60 years. Where is Jesus when you've lost your mind? And my mum went in to see my grandma on her birthday. My, my grandma didn't know who my mum was, what her birthday was, let alone presents. My mum sat in my grandma's bedroom and she turned to my grandma and said, can I pray with you? Now my grandma couldn't talk, so being a good evangelical Christian, my mum took the silence as the yes she wanted to hear. And my mum began to pray for this dear old woman that she might know peace in the midst of mental torture. When my mum opened her eyes, she was delighted that my grandma's eyes were shut. But then something unbelievable happened. For the only time in her last eight years of life, my grandma spoke as she prayed. She said, I don't know who I am, and I don't know what I am, and I don't know where I am, but Lord Jesus, please love me. That's all she said in the last eight years of life. Friends, where is God in the hard times? He's right there with you. That's why we praise him in the hard times. That's why we thank him in the hard times. You can even lose your mind and you do not lose Jesus. Our level of perseverance has to go up, but our level of trust for God has got to go up. And if we're going to trust God like this, we need to know him better, which is why I really believe this post-pandemic season is going to call for new reservoirs of spiritual disciplines. I know they're out of fashion, right? But people say to me, oh, it's a bit legalistic, old-fashioned to sort of be under that kind of law. Of that. And it's not that. It's a relationship. If I got up this morning and didn't say good morning to my wife because it's legalistic to do that every day, that would be bonkers. We've got to get serious. New levels of prayer. New levels of, of pressing in with the word of God. New, new levels of fasting and sacrificing in order to show him who, what he is all that matters. And new levels of holiness. I've just had it with Christian leaders in particular doing really stupid things. Can't we get accountable with each other? Why can't you be saying to the person next to you, what are you doing in your life that's most likely to trip you up, knowing they'll give you an answer? Because once it's out of the mouth, the devil's lost his power. We have got to get further and deeper into holiness. If in doubt, don't do it. Don't smoke that. Keep your trousers on. Turn your computer off. Stop fiddling your taxes. We have got to show a different way. Relentlessly trusting and pursuing the Lord. Perseverance, trust. And then I think the third thing that helps us be thankful in bad times is perspective. This is from verses 9 to 11. Let's get Christmassy again, shall we? The Magi, let's not call them wise men. It's not possible. It's just not possible. You can't, I haven't met three wise men in my life. So to meet three at the same time in the same place, it's not possible. And also they weren't wise men. They weren't kings. They were Magi. They were astrologers. That's why Matthew Henry says the wonderful thing is the stars that they used for bad is used for good as it leads them to the king. 
But you know the thing about the Magi? At some point, they stop going the way of God and they trust the minds over their hearts. And so they stop following the star, so they end up at a palace. They only end up at the palace when they stop following the star. Because you'd go to a palace to look for a king. If your perspective is one of common sense, then the Jesus way is sometimes going to be difficult for you. We've actually got to go his way. I mean, I love this image. They're all trying to take photos of the whale, but the whale's behind you. It's a time of testing that shows whether we have our priorities right. So the testing you go through shows, are your priorities in the right place? Because if your priorities are in the right place, you can still be thankful in the hard times. You know, I'll never forget a story my dad told me because he used to run the American Tear Fund and he went to Honduras around the year 2000 um, when there was a hurricane called Hurricane Mitch. And this absolutely took over the capital city of Honduras, Tegucigalpa. And they're walking through and they're seeing a scene of absolute devastation. There's the, the crippled man is in bed under 10 foot of mud with his crutch on the top, he's been destroyed. Whole communities are wiped out. There's a man weeping by this huge pile of rubble. He's asked, what's, what, what's going on? He says, under there is my wife and my kids. Then they go around one corner, this city's just destroyed one corner, and there's this old lady kind of bouncing along, looking a bit joyful. And they say to her, where are you going? She says, I'm going to church. I say, church, why are you going to church? She said, well, I love Jesus. They said, but what's happened? She said, I've lost two members of my family. I've lost my market store and everything I had to sell on my market store. My home's been destroyed and I'm going to church. They said, well, why are you going to church? She said, this is an opportunity for those of us that have Jesus to show those who don't have Jesus what it is to lose everything and have lost nothing because you still have Jesus. Friends, it's that kind of living. It's that kind of perspective. You know, the value tags we tie on stuff mean nothing, absolutely nothing, when God is brought into the equation. You know, the things we put so much energy into and effort into mean nothing compared to God. And I really believe the perspective of the UK church has got to change. I constantly hear people say, it's amazing what's going on in Iran or China. We want to see that here. But the problem is we want Iranian results for the church with UK comfort. And those two things do not go together. We need a different perspective. So how do you be thankful in bad times? I think you persevere. First you accept you just got to keep going. It's like I've run marathons and stuff and the key to running a marathon is to train properly and then just to be belligerent enough not to stop running. Also we need to trust. Do you actually trust God more than you trust yourself? And if you don't, there's some work to do. And then we need the right perspective that says whatever this world might steal, we've still got Jesus. You know, because those who persevere, trust and maintain perspective, it says in verse 12, will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. I'm kind of from a Christian mafia. Right? I'm the eighth generation called Reverend, not Mr. My old man and my grandpa both ran the Evangelical Alliance. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't like Simba as a baby. I wasn't lifted up like in the Lion King and promised. But it's kind of a, a big chain of family stuff. My, my granddad started Tear Fund. My dad started Spring Harvest. So if you've got any good ideas, I need one soon. But it was my grandpa's diamond wedding anniversary. Loads of years of being married, 60 years of marriage, incredible stuff. And the great and the good of their age group were all going to gather for this. But the problem was, my grandpa was not the man he used to be, health-wise. He preached every Sunday till he was 85. 
Then he decided it was time for what he called early retirement. Over the next five years, he had four strokes. And he'd sit in his chair sleeping for 20 hours a day. His body didn't work anymore, but his mind worked. And his terrible sense of humour still worked too. But only ever for 30 seconds at a time, he'd go to sleep. He slept over 20 hours a day. I was around for Sunday lunch once. My grandma was talking about the negative effect witchcraft was having on the church in Britain. After an hour and a half, my granddad woke up. He said, I know all about witches, having lived with one for 60 years. (laughs) He then went to sleep. That was all I got out of him on that whole trip. And it was their diamond wedding anniversary. The great and the good of their age group gathered in this auditorium to celebrate them. You know, ministry is the most underpaid and over-criticised job you can do. If Pastor Eddie or anyone else has done anything to bless you, thank him. Thank him. Thank him. Because it's hard. And this was like the ministry Oscars for them. And the great and the good got up to thank them for stuff. The Bible college principal, the church planter, the businessman, the Bible translator, person after person after person, thanking this couple. It was fun at first after three hours with all had enough. Apart from my granddad, he'd just been kipping. And then the last thing done was read out was a telegram from Sir Cliff Richard saying that Gilbert and Connie Kirby, that's my grandparents' names, had been the most significant spiritual influence of anyone in his life. The place went mad. There were blue rinse wigs flying, Zimmer frames going, false teeth out of mouths. Everyone was getting so excited. And my granddad's asleep. And my grandma gets up to thank everyone. Thanks for coming. We couldn't have done it without you. It's been really hard, but thank you so much. Then something dangerous happened. My granddad showed that his 30 seconds of breath were upon him. He got wheeled up. He got given the microphone. He said, I'm not going to thank any of you for coming. He said, Jesus, who is God, came from highest heaven to lowest earth. Walked the earth, giving food to the hungry, health to the sick, life to the dead. Died upon a cross, taking every wrong thing upon himself. You've ever done, ever might do, ever could do, that you needn't be punished, but could be set free from your brokenness and know life in all its fullness now and life in all its fullness forever. They threw him in a grave and three days later the grave was empty because my Jesus, your Jesus, defeated death that we might know life. And if you've never met Jesus for yourself, just wondered if you might want to surrender your life to Jesus and just stand up now. Now, let me just put it in perspective. It's a very British occasion. How to spoil the mood with a gospel appeal. And also, by the way, as the people started to stand, six people stood, my granddad fell asleep. He didn't even pray the prayer welcoming him into the kingdom. And he died three months later. So the last time, he'd spoken to microphones tens of thousands of times, the last time he did it, he was still with his 90-plus-year-old body persevering. He was still trusting God that even though it, was, it would change the mood, it was the right thing to do. And he still had the perspective that, frankly, a party about him was worth nothing. It was always a party about him. I want to be like that when I grow up. You see, we're living in a funny time, and I'll say this to finish. People have been in the same storm but different boat. This is the time for the church to rise up and show. We can be thankful in hard times because we've got Jesus. But how do we show other people what it means to follow Jesus? Because we are living in the greatest moment for the gospel in my lifetime. I wrote the foreword to a book on evangelical church history, 1900 to 1950. I had to read a thesaurus for a lot of it, but I read the book. There was one bit in it that said this. At the end of the Second World War in the United Kingdom, church attendance exploded for 18 months. But after 18 months, church attendance was back down below pre-Second World War levels. And the diagnosis was this. (coughs) The church spent 18 months getting themselves comfortable, back to normal and okay. And by the time the church had sorted themselves out, 
the world had lost interest and moved on. Friends, we have the greatest opportunity since the Second World War. We've not been in a war, but we've heard about excess deaths on the news every day. We've been living with mortality salience and awareness of our brokenness. And people are interested in things deeper than what they've had before. But what we mustn't do is go back to Egypt and try to recreate something where we're comfortable whilst the world is looking for hope. It won't be in your buildings, it'll be online, it'll be over garden fences in workplaces. But we must not miss this moment because the moment is now to show we are thankful in bad times because we've got a bigger perspective from a bigger story. It's all about Jesus. And in 18 months time we might turn around and say we're happy with church again and we might have missed it. Let's not miss it. You see, what I would say is it's so much easier right now to share the gospel than at any time I've been alive. Because I've tried every day I've been alive. Every day since I've come to Jesus, i tried to tell someone about Jesus. And it's easier right now. I'll give you two quick examples. One, my barber. I live in northwest London, so I pay too much to get my hair cut. It's not a hard job. It's not done well. <coughs> but for the last five years, I've gone to the same barber. And every time, I've thought, if I'm paying you that, you're going to hear me talk about Jesus. So every time I've had a right go and I've got absolutely nowhere. Till last time I went in, this is what he says as I walk through the door. I am so pleased to see you. I've never wanted to talk about God so much. I was in there for an hour and a half. I don't know what he did to my hair, really. Or I was at the late Joel Edwards. You may have come across Joel Edwards. He used to lead the EA. Great man. I was at a celebration of his life recently. And this lad comes up towards me. He's about 25. Massive, big, athletic, muscly guy. It was like looking in a mirror. And he came up to me. And he says, he says, when are you and your wife going to do more of those shows? We used to do a show on TBM. When are you going to do more of those shows? I'm like, well, we're not going to. You can't do everything. Well, my mum loves them and you're not doing Why aren't you going to do any more? I said, we're not going to do them. I'm really sorry. He said, well, during lockdown, right, he says, I got so bored that I watched four of them with my mum. <laughs> and at the end of it, I gave my life to Jesus. I'm thinking, How? I mean, the shows weren't particularly evangelistic or anything else. But friends, the thing is, is we're living in a thinner space. People are desperately looking for hope. Hope is a name. His name is Jesus. How can we be thankful in hard times? Because we know the rock of ages, the unchanging one. What's different with this Omicron thing as we face that when you face it with Jesus as opposed to without Jesus? What's different in your workplace, your community, your area? So I would say, friends, persevere, trust, perspective. But also, please don't miss the open goal in front of you. The open goal to share that hope. Because thankfulness is the antidote to pain, actually. And we're living amongst pain. So we need to be thankful, but we need to also share that with others. Because I believe that this is a moment for the church to be braver and kinder than it's ever been. And the brave thing, actually, is to be thankful when the world's telling you to be upset. And the kind thing is to share that with others. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, everyone's eyes are shut, but just, I really do, I'm, I'm really, really energised by the fact that at the end of the Second World War, so many Christians in this country sorted themselves out instead of looking outwards. And I really feel that for so many of us, there's a challenge to be braver and to look outwards in this moment. And so I just want to ask, if you're, if you're feeling challenged by that, that you want to be thankful in hard times, but you also, particularly this Christmas time, you want to, you want to open your mouth for the King of the world. You want to make a difference in witnessing to those around you and you want God to help you in that. If that's you and you're able, would you just stand where you are, please? Just if that's you today, because I really feel there's a call on the church to start witnessing more effectively in this moment. 
that's you, I'd just if you'd stand, I'd just love to pray for you. Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who just really feel this particular moment is a moment when they need to be bolder and braver. I pray you would give them the words to say. I pray you would give them all they need. And I pray you would lead them in your ways, a fresh anointing of your spirit to witness, we pray. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us at www.gatewaychapel.org.uk Remember to subscribe so you'll never miss another message like this one. Be blessed.